0: This time we are going to be reading the scripture. You just joined as we've been going through a series of sermons on the book of Ephesians, and this morning we're looking at Ephesians two, verses one to ten. So please follow along with me as I read the the word of God. Ephesians two, one to ten. It's the word of God. It says, "And you are dead in the trespasses and sin, in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air." the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and mind and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespass made us alive together with Christ by grace you've been saved and raised us up with him seated us up seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus for by grace you have been saved through faith this is not your own of your own doing it is the gift of god not a result of works so that no one may boast for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Amen. Let's surrender God's word. Please join me in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Your word is life and light. Your word tells us who we are and where we're going. And I pray that your word would be so clear and it would so point to who you are and who we are and our desperate need for you. I pray, God, that you would anoint your servant with your spirit. Fill him up. That he would only speak truthfully and forcefully, your truth. We pray this in Jesus' name, Amen. Well, we're right at the beginning of a series of sermons. Just joined us. We've been looking at this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, and we've been calling this series the Blueprint because it shows us. It gives us a great overview. Gives us a great overview of of the work of God, what God is doing in the world. Uh, God's purpose for the church, and God's purpose for our lives. And this morning, we're going to zone in on this last idea of what is God's purpose? What is his plan for my life? Uh, We're looking at the idea that God is writing a story in our life, story. And sometimes in our life, we get mixed up about what is ultimately the story or the purpose of my life. And sometimes we get sidetracked. Sometimes we think the story of our lives is about our family, meeting a special person or kids. Sometimes we think the story is about our career and success. Sometimes we think it's about experiences or pleasure. And we get mixed up about what exactly the story, the direction of my life is supposed to be about. So this morning we want to look at, well, God is writing a story. Every good story has a beginning, middle, and end. And today we want to see that God's ultimate story for us is in Christ Jesus. And Ephesians 2 reminds us of that story. It tells us about a past, a past without God, without Jesus. Secondly, how presently we can come to know Jesus. And third, how we can live with power and hope in our lives. Those three things. And the first thing I want to start with is our past. We've been studying this letter that Paul wrote to the Ephesian church And in the first chapter of Ephesians, Paul has these big ideas about God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And God is up to something amazing and profound in the world. God in Christ is, his mission is to reconcile everything to himself. To take everything that is broken in the world and make it new, make it whole. And he has these big ideas but in chapter two, Paul takes a big, these big ideas and he wants to, he wants to make it uh, much more personal. Notice the pronouns that Paul uses in, in chapter one are plural. He talks about us and we. But when he looks at chapter two, we see singular pronouns you. He says, You were dead. And he says, By grace, you've been saved. And what Paul is doing is he, he's taking this big idea of what God is doing in the world, and he wants to bring it home to us, to me. What is God doing in my life? What is the story that God is writing? And Paul does that, and he wants to show us the story by talking about the past first. And he talks about the past in this way in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 to 3. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Paul talks about this idea of he wants to start with who we are before we knew Christ. And he talks about it in really dark terms. He says that we were dead. He doesn't just say, Paul doesn't just say, the Bible doesn't just say that without God we're lost or we're spiritually sick. The Bible says we got much more profound problems than that. The Bible says that outside of God and Christ we are dead. That we are lifeless. Other places in the Old Testament it says that we have a heart of stone. That the very center of our life is lifeless. We don't have any feelings for God. We're unbothered by who God is. And the result of that is not just a spiritual death but physical death. That we all of us will eventually die. And that's not how God made us. And we're surrounded by death all around us. Around We have a culture of death, of violence, of war, of bloodshed. And why is that? Why is our world such a dark place of hatred? Paul lists three reasons. He says that the world is all broken up because there are three enemies in the world. Three things that lead us astray. And he starts by talking about this idea of the world. Ephesians 2 verse 1, Paul says, You were dead in the trespasses in your sins in which you once walked he says one of the promises we're following the course of the world the first enemy is the world what is the world? the the word world is a very broad term it can mean people but it can also mean nations institutions Uh, it can mean unjust structures that we are all a part of You know, if you look at the headlines today, there are all kinds of flare-ups all around the world, protests against authoritarian governments. Places like Chile or China, there are places where people are protesting and being killed for their protests. And what are people protesting? They're protesting uh, the divide between the rich and the poor. They're protesting the dehumanization of lives. There is institutional racism. There's rampant discrimination. And we can all be part of these systems which are unjust. And we can be along for the ride, especially if it favors us. It's easy just to be part of that and not speak up. But the world can also mean our culture. Uh, The culture is a powerful thing. It's tangible things like the music we listen to, the shows that we watch. It's the air that we breathe. But our culture can also be values that we have. Things that are unspoken, that we value as a culture. Our culture in Los Angeles idolizes things like youth, experiences, sex, uh, influence. The more conservative parts of our culture idolizes family, security, money. And if you're not careful or thoughtful, what the Apostle Paul is saying, we can unconsciously follow all of those idols, we can unconsciously follow and be part of all of these unjust institutions. Paul says, before you're in Christ, you were swept away with these things. You just live like everybody else lived. You assume the values that everybody else assumed. That you the The first enemy is the world. You're part of this system. You're part of its values and desires. But the second enemy is this. Paul says, not just that. But secondly, you are following the prince of the power of the air. The second enemy is the devil. He calls it the prince of the power of the air. This week we have Halloween. And um, Halloween, I don't know for what reason, is blowing up all the time. It's getting bigger and bigger. And at Halloween, some people dress up as a devil. And what does the devil look like according to the world? The devil is a guy with a red jumpsuit. He has like a tail. He has a pitchfork. That's a ridiculous picture of the devil. There's nowhere way in the Bible. Let me tell you. What is the picture of the devil in the Bible? Look with me in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. 14. This is what the devil looks like. Uh, Paul says, And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. What does Satan look like? Man, If Satan, if you were to see Satan today, he would look like a very well-respected man. Very moral. Family man. You know, successful in life and business, persuasive, charismatic, goes to church even. Paul says the devil disguises himself as the angel of light. Uh, I was reading a book by Richard Loveless, and he talks about how the Bible describes three strategies of Satan, kind of things that he does. And number one is this. What does Satan do? Number one, the devil is a tempter. We see this right at the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 2. The devil tempts Adam and Eve as a serpent. He entices them to doubt God. That's always ultimately the mission of Satan, to, to, to help us to doubt God, to alienate ourselves from God. Secondly, the strategy of Satan is deception. In Revelation 12, 19, it says Satan deceives the whole world. Satan loves to spread misinformation, uh, he loves to disguise lies as a truth and truth as a lies To mix lies and truth together so you're not exactly sure which one is which. He disguises himself, as we said, as an angel of light. He sends false prophets who say they are from God, but they are not. Satan loves to deceive, to distort, to manipulate truths. Finally... The strategy of Satan is to accuse. In fact, the word devil means accuser. Satan is described in Revelation 12 as one who dis- accuses believers day and night. Satan loves to condemn you, make you feel small. Satan loves to tell you, man, God doesn't love you. How can God love you? You know all the bad things you've done. God doesn't love you. He doesn't have his best interests for you. He loves to slander us, to accuse us, to condemn us, to make us feel small, to make us feel unworthy. Paul says that there, before we're in Christ, we're under the authority of the prince of the power of the air. And here's our final enemy, the flesh. Ephesians 2, 3. Among whom we also lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Finally, the enemy is outside of us, above us. And finally, we're our own worst enemies. Uh, Paul says that we have in the flesh. The flesh is the part. It's not physical flesh. But it's every part of our life that is opposed to God, that wants to live independently of God. It's the curved in part of our life that says it's all about me. The enemy is not just outside, not just above, but it's in us. We're our own worst enemies. When you look at the world around us, it is so falling apart and so broken because there is a systematic, there is an intelligent, systematic structure of evil that is all around us. It's in structures, but it's also in every human soul. And what the devil loves to do is present a cocktail a cocktail, a concoction that combines all of these temptations in the world and our flesh and our desires, and he manipulates them and mixes them up until we are enslaved. We are enslaved by sin. We are part of this unjust structure. We are on our way to the depths of hell. And hell ultimately is a place that's not like this picture that we get in our culture, which is Fire and brimstone and suffering, but it's a place ultimately away from the presence of God. Away from his glory and beauty. One of the greatest lies that Satan tells us is this lie. It's the lie that we're okay. Uh, I, I say this lie sometimes as well. Have you ever said this lie? You're having a terrible day and someone asks you how you're doing. You're like, oh, I'm okay. You know, we love to tell that lie. Satan loves for you to believe the lie that I'm all right, I'm, I got this, I'm okay. Uh, he loves to make you feel like you're okay, you don't really need any help, any need, you got it. But deep inside we know we're all broken. You know, deep inside of anybody, whether you're religious or not religious, you know that deep inside that's not right. There's something deep inside of us, that we got a hole, a mammoth hole in us. We're desperately longing and seeking something. But here's the thing. The Bible uncovers that lie. The Bible says things are actually much, much worse than we think that they are. It's much worse. We're in over our heads. But only when you confess that, admit that, can the second thing break in. There's some good news. Once you admit that things are worse than you think that they are, you're desperately in need of help, there is this infinite grace. This is the second thing. Available to you in Christ Jesus. This is the present. The Bible says things are very bad. Uh, We've shaken our fists at God. Uh, We've messed up and polluted his world. And we live in this place of hatred and self-interest. The wonder... You know, uh, Jonathan Edwards in one of his famous sermons said that the world is so angry with us, the earth is so angry with us because we polluted it, we mistreated it. There's bloodshed, that blood has seeped into the ground, and the, the creation, the world is so angry with it, it would swallow us up if God did not prevent it from doing it. He says the ground is so angry at us, the way we've destroyed the earth, The way we misused everything. The the way that we're so self-centered. There's so much violence and hatred and anger and war. The world is so angry with us. It would swallow us up. But that God prevents it. You know, people talk about the wrath of God and they say, well, how could God be so angry? And the question really isn't how can God be so angry. But when we look at how we live and how we've broken everything, the question is, how is God so patient with us? That should be the question. Not why is God so angry, but why is God so patient? Why is God so kind? Why, why does God not judge the world? Here's the answer to that. In verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we are dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, By grace, you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Scripture says we were on a one-way road to destruction. We were the walking dead enslaved by our own desires, away from God. It says, but God intervened. But God. But God. Why? It says God was rich in mercy. Because of his lavish love for us, his heart hurt when he saw us in that condition. And because of his massive love for us, he rescues us. It says in verse 5, when we were dead, God made us alive. He gave us spiritual CPR. In verse 6, God raised us up and seated with us with him in the heavenly places. We're on a one-way Road away from God. We're driving a bus away from God. We're with all these people who are cheering us on. We're being manipulated. We're blind. Heading into the abyss. A cliff. Away from God. Little did we know that the place away from God. Is a place of utter shame and ruin and darkness. But we did not know that. It says, but God intervened. God rescued us from that certain death. And God brings us from the lowest places. It says, now he seats us in the heavenly places. God brings us from the depths of hell to the highest point in the heavenly places. He seats us with God. And when you think about that, he does it out of sheer grace. In verse 8, this is what it says. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. This is one of the most famous parts of the New Testament because it clearly tells us how do we get there? How do we get from here to there? And it says it's by grace. It's nothing that we've done. It's nothing that we've done. It's not by being good or being a good person, being moral. It's by God's sheer grace. This goes against... The idea of grace is so foreign to us because it goes against almost everything in life, which is about work or effort. Uh, many people uh, talk about this principle uh, from Malcolm Gladwell. He wrote a book called Outliers. And very famously in this book, he gives a principle called the 10,000-hour uh, rule. And he studies all these great musicians and these uh, great scientists... And these people have achieved great things. And he says what they all have in common is that they've worked 10,000 hours to get there. So all these people are like, man, I've got to get my work in. I've got to do 10,000 hours to become a great chef or a great actress uh, or a great musician. It's all about the 10,000 hours. Uh, this summer I was reading a book by Angela Duckworth called Grit. And in it, She interviews all of these people. She interviews all of these Navy SEALs who came from prestigious places like West Point. And they're trying to make it through the most brutal boot camp in the Army. And she's asked to predict, to think about who are the men who are going to survive this boot camp. She goes to school districts, and she's asked to assess... All of these teachers, which one of these teachers are going to make it through the end of the year? Which one of them are going to get their pupils to be the highest performing pupils? She goes to businesses and she researches and talks to CEOs to see which salesperson is going to do the best with sales. How do I know? How do I predict that? And in all of these studies, in all of these disciplines, what she says is the greatest predictor of success, getting through that boot camp, making the sales, raising test scores is not education. It's not how well they, they did academically. It's not intelligence. It's not any of these things. She says the people that perform the best are people who have the name of the book, grit. She calls grit perseverance. Passion and perseverance for long-term goals. She talks about this whole idea that we need grit. It's like the 10,000-hour rule. We need to work on it, work at it. We need to sweat. The experts all tell us, man, it's about grit. Got to work at it. Got to persevere. But guess what? That's not the way to God. The way to God is not grit. It's grace. It's not perseverance and sweat and trying to be a good person. It's the grace of God that he has done it all. And that's the wonderful news that God has for you. The gospel is the story that Jesus has done all the grit for us. He has lived the perfect life for us, gritting all of and obeying every single command of God in our place, Jesus went to the cross and He was our substitute sacrifice. He took on our curse that we deserved, and when we believe on Christ, all of the all of our sins are placed on Christ, and all of His all of His righteousness is given to us. That's grace. It's undeserved. Um, verse eight, Paul says, salvation is a gift. It's a present. It doesn't, have, uh, it, it, it doesn't have any receipts. It's pure gift. We get it. We open it. It's all ours. You know, why did um, God make salvation that way? It's pure grace, not grit. It's pure everything that God has done. It's not achieved. It's received. It's a gift. Why did God design salvation that way? Well, in verse 9, this is what Paul says. Not a result of works. So that no one may boast, God planned salvation that way so that nobody could boast. If it was about works, it was about grit, being good, being moral. Any one of us can say, "Man, that's all." That I feel good about myself. I achieved that. But if salvation is 100% by grace, nobody can boast. Nobody can say it's me. It humbles everyone, and it exalts God. It's all God's work. It's all his glory. It's all his power. It's all his love. So that no one may boast. But the result of all that is also, now we can have peace in our life. You know, if you, we live in a world, again, of grit, of performance, and all of that can feel so exhausting. You know, I was reading an article about a worker who worked at an Amazon warehouse I don't know if you know about what, what it means to work there. And she said she was at an Amazon warehouse. And she says, the reason, man, your stuff gets to you so fast is she says she was in this warehouse, stocking, taking things from the shelf, putting it in the cart to deliver it to all of us. And she says what every moment she's working, she is being tracked. There's a tracker that beeps. And she says she had got a quota for every hour. She says that she has to meet that quota. And it beeps if you don't meet that quota. And she says, all of her coworkers, they go to the bathroom as fast as they humanly can because she says she doesn't want to miss that quota. She wants to get that bonus. And she said, man, I only lasted a few months because it was exhausting. I was always under management, I was super stressed about meeting my deadlines. That beep is in my head. It's in my sleep. i got to do more. i got to work more. i got to get that. We live in this performance culture that says you got to do more and be more. you got to get those 10,000 hours done. You have to continue to work, to excel. And all of that has led us to a whole culture of burnout. We're so tired. I can't tell you the amount of people that I pray for at City Light who are so tired. So exhausted. And this word of grace is so liberating. It says to us, man, you do not have to work anymore to achieve God's love. That all we have to do is rest in Christ. That's all. He's done done everything for us. He's done all that work for us. And on Sundays, just rest in me. You know, the last word that Jesus ever said is the phrase, it is finished. That's what he said on the cross. I, I did it all. I did all the work for you. Rest in me. Rest in me like a child rests when they're with their father. I've done it all for you. Pray and rest. I got it. Uh, you have a perfect righteousness. And all we need to do then is accept the fact that we are accepted. Accept the fact that we are accepted. Uh, All you have to do is have faith, which uh, Horatius Bonar in his beautiful essay called Everlasting Righteousness says, faith is simply resting in Jesus. Faith is not work, it's rest. Faith is not doing stuff to get God to love us, but resting in the fact he already loves us in Jesus. All we need to do is accept the fact that we're accepted. And that is the good news of the gospel. And when you receive that, here's the final part of that story. The final part of the story is now that our past was one of slavery. In Christ, we've been liberated. And now, the future is that now we can live with power and hope in our lives. When God rescues us by sheer grace, we talked about the three enemies. uh, The world, the devil, and the flesh. And when you become a believer, it's not like all those three things go away. But... When you become a believer, you are filled with the Holy Spirit, and now you are given authority over all of those three things. You're given authority over all these things, three things. We talked about the world and how, before we are in Christ, we simply followed the world. In Romans 12:2, this is what Paul says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, What is good, acceptable, and perfect. Paul says no longer do we have to be conformed to the world. Don't follow the course of the world anymore. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Secondly, we talked about the devil. Has the devil, the prince, the power of the air. We're under his spell. But now in Christ, things have changed. In James 4, 7. This is what James says. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Uh, James says we've been given spiritual authority in Christ and now we can simply resist the devil and he will flee, flee right away from us. Finally, we talked about the flesh and in Christ Jesus, we still have these desires that are disordered, but look with me at 1 Corinthians 10, 13. This is what Paul says, no temptation has overtaken you that is common to man. God is faithful and will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Paul says that there's no situation in life that God is going to place you in a situation, a temptation, that you can't escape. God will always give you the strength and ability and the opportunity to flee it. God has given you spiritual authority. Sin is no longer your master. The devil no longer has control over you. You no longer have to follow the course of the world. God says you're free. You're free from that authority. You've been free from the power of sin and death and the devil. And now positively, you're called now to a life of service, of works to him. This is the last verse, Ephesians 2.10. We've been freed up so that we can do verse 10. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Finally, Paul says, We've been free from all of that so that he calls us his workmanship. That word workmanship can be translated masterpiece. In the Greek, that word is used to talk about creative accomplishments, like creating a poem. Apostle Paul says, Man, you are God's poem, you are God's masterpiece. And the reason that God has saved you is to good works. You're not saved because of your good works. But after you're saved, God calls you to good works. We talked about all the broken things in the world, the racism, the injustice. And one of the things that God calls us now to do as his people is now we're called to live in his light. To live differently, distinctly. We're called to pursue peace. Seek justice. We are called to be merciful and loving. Uh, In 1 Peter 2.9, Paul says, the reason God calls you from the darkness is so that we would uh, shine as lights in the world. That uh, we would call, we've been called out of his darkness into his marvelous light. And the future, ultimately in the future, Heaven will break in. You know, we live in the overlapping of ages, this age and the age to get, come. Heaven is broken in through Christ, so the age to come is breaking in. You know, if you're not in Christ, uh, the age to come, which is hell and death, is already breaking into your life. Your body is breaking down. It's echoes of the judgment that is coming. But if you're in Christ, The new age, the new heavens and earth, it's already breaking in right now. We can now have his peace and his joy and his freedom. But one day, that peace, the freedom, the joy, the presence of God is going to shine on us. We're going to have a new heavens and a new earth. We're going to be with God. Finally, we'll be home. And now we're called to live with hope for that day. We talked about this whole idea of the story. When you have the story, that story of God needs to be your story, your center, and when you have it, your life will change. You'll be a person of hope. Uh, I love this idea that uh, salvation is a gift. Because if you understand salvation is a gift, it's so undeserved, nothing I did, uh, and you really think about that and live that out, every day will be a gift. You know, every day. I did not deserve this gift this day. I did not deserve this breath i did not, I'm not, instead of being ungrateful and bitter and pessimistic when this story becomes the story of your life you 're going to be filled with hope. Everything is a gift that you 're grateful for. Every day is one step closer home, and people of God would you live would this be the center of your story, your past being Freed from it, your present, God working, God freeing and liberating your future being glory. Would that be your story? If you're not in Christ, God welcomes you to believe this story. It's a gift. It's a gift of God's grace. Please join me in prayer. Father, thank you for this tremendous story. And Father, forgive us for forgetting it. So we get caught up so often in lives in things that don't really matter. And I just pray that this story would be the story of our lives. God, so many of us live like sin is still our master in this world and this culture is still the path that we are to pursue. But I pray, God, you'd write, rewrite that story, that our past is not the present or the future. I pray, God, that the hope of heaven and the glory that is to come would be so part of our present. Help us to live with purpose and joy. Help us to serve not our culture or our work ultimately, but to serve you. Give us freedom from anxiety. Give us freedom from condemnation. Give us freedom from not listening to the temptations and the slander of the devil. Help us to tune that out. Help us to hear your voice telling us we are forgiven, we are loved, we have authority, we have the spirit. Heaven is our home and our future. I pray that that would be our song, our story, our hope